Well, we come this morning to John chapter 17, so if you have a Bible, we can go ahead and turn there. This is actually the Lord's Prayer. Now, I know many of you have memorized the Lord's Prayer from Matthew and Luke's Gospel, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. We, we've memorized that. Even some of you have never touched a King James Bible, but you have memorized the Lord's Prayer in King James. Well, John 17 is actually the Lord's Prayer. What we traditionally call the Lord's Prayer is actually Jesus teaching his disciples, teaching us how to pray. But here in John 17, we see the Lord actually interceding for his people. Very similar to like a high priest in the Old Testament would intercede for Israel. So this chapter is also called, and maybe your Bible even has a little heading there, the high priestly prayer. So my prayer for you this morning is, by the time we're done with this chapter, and some of you, you've already told me, this is, this is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Um, that's awesome. I love that. But um, I don't like when you tell me that before I preach the passage. If you will wait till I'm done, it puts a lot of pressure on me to preach your favorite passage, and I know I'm going to butcher it because this is such a deep, rich passage. So my prayer for you is that as we're working through this, something would stir inside you that, that would just captivate your attention to the Lord, that, that you'd be ready to praise God for his kindness, uh, that you're overwhelmed hearing Jesus pray on your behalf. So let's turn our attention to John chapter 17. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning, then we'll take some time. We'll slow down and do our best uh, to do this passage. Some of your some of you, it's your favorite passage. We'll try to do it justice this morning. So verse 1 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they... They know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I'm no longer in the world. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, 
and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made them known. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, we want to thank you for um, leaving us with this prayer. It reminds us of how much you love us the things that you desire for us, Lord, I pray that we would be these things. These petitions you've made on our behalf, uh, Lord, may we just be overwhelmed with your kindness. Father, I pray right now that, uh, that you'd give us ears to hear from you this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So John 17, it's, it's all just one, one big prayer. It's the longest prayer recorded in the Bible of Jesus praying. And it comes right before his betrayal and crucifixion. So this is what's fascinating to me. So not only is it the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, one could argue that this is the most important prayer of Jesus in the Bible, maybe the most important prayer in all of the Bible. It's about 650 words. It took me about four minutes to read it. I will spend the next 40 minutes roughly trying to unpack it. And yet it's so rich and deep and beautiful that we could spend the next 40 years trying to mine the depths of this chapter. Now, thankfully, this prayer is broken up into three clear sections. So that's going to be my outline this morning. Is we're going to see first in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus prays for himself. Then Jesus prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. When I say his disciples, I mean these 11 men that he's been walking with. Then third, um, in verses 20 through 26, he prays for us, which is amazing to think about that Jesus would pray on our behalf. So that's the outline this morning. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for the 11 disciples. Then Jesus prays for us or the church. So let's look at this first petition found in verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus begins his prayer by saying that his hour has come. Now this phrase we've talked about, it's an extremely important phrase that's used all throughout John's gospel. So I want to just I want us to see the beauty of this, how he carries this out. We first saw this phrase, a similar phrase, um, at the wedding in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4, and Jesus said to her, talking to his mom, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Chapter 4, speaking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. A few chapters later, in chapter 7, verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The next chapter, chapter 8, verse 20, the words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12, verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Then chapter 13, now before the feast of the Passover in verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Chapter 16, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. He's talking about things that are, the trouble is coming their way, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. And then now we see this phrase here, chapter 17, verse 1. The hour had come. It hadn't come. It hadn't come yet. Not yet. Not yet. Now we're here. This is the culmination, the climax, the pinnacle of Jesus' earthly ministry. It is to bring glory to the Father and to glorify himself. Three years ago, he attended a wedding with his mom. His hour had not yet come, but now that he's about to attend, um, his, he's about to attend his own funeral, his hour has come. So when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven, and this is not a model like to pray. You don't have to you know, bow your head or lift up your head or close your eyes, open up your eyes. This is Jesus praying here. He, he lifts up his eyes to heaven. And he says, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So the hour had come where Jesus and the father would both be glorified. This hour is referring to the death and resurrection. It's referring to the cross. It's in the cross where we will see the father being glorified. To glorify means to make much of something, to honor, to lift up, to exalt, to make a big deal of someone. And it's usually tied to some type of accomplishment. So in the mystery of the cross, the supreme moment of Christ's glorification will come in what looks like the supreme moment of his defeat. Jesus is crying out, Father, make a big deal of me by handing me over to be killed. We make a big deal of Jesus because of the cross. Christ was lifted up in shame that he might also be lifted up in glory. The focus of the suffering of Christ on the cross has recently gained some traction among this movement called progressive Christianity. So proponents of this would say that the cross is like this cosmic case or form of child abuse. But we see in these verses that this is not something falling upon an unwilling son by a vengeful father. What we see here is a display, an expression of what had been a covenant between the father and the son from all eternity past. There had been this agreement between the father and the son that this is how humanity would be saved. This was their plan before the foundation of the world. Listen to Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open up its seals because for this reason you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This was their plan, that Jesus would die on behalf of the people. His blood would cover their sin. So how is the Father glorified? He's glorified in the cross. The Father is glorified by the world because the cross had made a way for wicked, fallen mankind to be reconciled with him. He's glorified um, in the cross because Jesus had lived a sinless life and could be the perfect sacrifice for mankind. The Father is supremely glorified in the death, resurrection, and exaltation of the Son. So, parents, you, you, you know this. You know that you take great pride in your children's accomplishments. You, know, you love to watch your children succeed at things. Uh, several weeks ago, Olivia and I got to take Thea, she's our seven-year-old, to the Capitol to present an essay that she had submitted and won. She was one of the 15 winners in West Virginia. And so she got to read her report, her little essay, in front of a little crowd. And I was so proud of her reading this, how she wanted to be a zookeeper. She wanted to take care of the animals. And so here, God the Father is watching his son accomplish something that no one in the history of man could do, obtain perfection down behalf uh, of, of sinners. In, in the redemption of the world, um, we see this picture of Christ dying for us. Now, think about this. If, if the redemption of mankind rested on my shoulders or your shoulders to live a perfect life, the world is in a, in a huge mess. 
The place where God is most glorified is it's not in creation. It's not in a, um, a beautiful sunset, but at a bloody cross and an empty tomb. That's where God is most glorified. Not only was the Father glorified in the cross, we also see that the Son is glorified in the cross. Jesus is glorified because he becomes the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. No one. All the billions of people, he's elevated above them all, made much of because of his death on the cross. It is the most important day in human history, the death and resurrection. Paul reminds us in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow to Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But how could Jesus say that he has accomplished, past tense, that he's accomplished the work that the Father has given him to do, and yet he hasn't quite done it yet? Well, one theologian writes this. How could Jesus use the word accomplish? His three-year ministry seemed all too short. A prostitute at Simon's banquet had found forgiveness in a new life, but many others still walked the street without forgiveness in that new life. For every ten withered muscles that had flexed into health, a hundred remained impotent. Yet on the last night, with many useful tasks undone and urgent human needs unmet, the Lord had peace. He knew that he had finished God's work. We may wonder why our Lord's ministry was so short, why it could have lasted you know, another five or ten years, why so many wretched sufferers were left in their misery. Scripture gives no answer to these questions, and we leave them in the mystery of God's purposes. But we do know that Jesus' prayerful waiting for God's instruction freed him from the tyranny of the urgent. It gave him a sense of direction, set a steady pace, and enabled him to do every task God assigned. And on the last night, he could say, I have accomplished the work which thou gavest me to do. So the accomplished work that Jesus is referring to is bringing glory to the Father by making peace between God and man. His accomplishment is looking back to his perfect act of obedience and a commitment to the cross. He could then speak in the past tense because he had resolved in his heart what he was going to do. And in verse 5, Jesus makes, this, makes a bold petition. He says, glorify me. This is a huge request that he makes here. Isaiah 42, verse 8, shows us why this is such a bold request. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God does not share his glory, and yet here we see Jesus asking God to glorify his name. So what does this teach us about Jesus? It shows us that Jesus believes that he is fully God, and he deserves to be glorified. And then now we move to the second part of his prayer. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. 
Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. He's talking about the 11 disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So this is, sometimes you may just rip that out and think, well, why wouldn't Jesus pray for the world? He prays for the world all the time. Right now, he's specifically saying this prayer is for these 11 disciples. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and have not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. For they, are, for they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. So it's important for us to keep in mind what's happening around this passage. Jesus is about to die. And in moments, he's about to be arrested, questioned, beaten, crucified. And we find him here in prayer, praying for his disciples. His prayer is that his, fo his followers would live out their purpose. God has a purpose for each one of us. Our purpose can also be found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed and made. What is your purpose? Why were you created? To bring God glory, to glorify him. That's why you exist. Some have argued that this makes God a narcissist. A narcissist is someone who has, they have to be made much of, uh, someone who is self-absorbed. The difference is that God knows what is best for us. It is best for us to make much of him. Our lives are better when we exalt, when we glorify his name. A narcissist is all about themselves and does not care about you. But God cares deeply about you. This prayer is actually the evidence of his love for his disciples. You're going to see five petitions that Jesus makes on behalf of his disciples, these 11 disciples. And then you're going to see how those five petitions will lead to one major global petition. So first, verse 11, he prays that his disciples would be kept. So first, kept, no, verse 11. I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus, he's used this concept elsewhere in this gospel. Uh, like, for example, in John 10, verse 29, Jesus says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so the prayer in verse 11 is this, keep them in your name. It's, it's to keep them loyal, to, to keep them loyal to you and to your character. And I love here that, that Jesus doesn't just assume that anyone can just put their life on cruise control. He, he aggressively prays for his Father to keep them. And so you and I need to hear this warning in Scripture that, that no one is beyond, from a human perspective, from falling away. This was the warning last week in chapter 16. I mean, think about what's going on here. The Father has chosen. He's elected these disciples, and yet Jesus is praying that they would be kept. If Jesus prays this, surely we must pray this for one another. And not only for one another, but also for ourselves, that God would keep us. And notice he doesn't ask that they would be taken out of the world, but kept from the evil one. So this is where we get the phrase, we are in the world, but not of it. It comes from John 17. So God warns you against pursuing the world. He wants to keep you from sin, but not to keep you from pleasure. So those who experience the most pleasure from this world are actually those who are most obedient to God. Sometimes we think that God is trying to rob us from joy by giving us all these commands. The commands are there to give you ultimate joy. So Jesus prays that the Father would keep his word and keep you in him. Next, Jesus prays that his followers would be united. This also is found in verse 11. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that, I may, that, that they may be one, even as we are one. Who's the we? Father and Son. Jesus is praying that we be one as he and the Father is one. That's incredible prayer, that you and I would have the same type of relationship that he has with his Father. This petition, it forces you to look across the aisle, to look to another pew, to ask yourself, to examine if you have anything against someone in this room. Is there a division or severed relationship that needs to be restored this morning? He's calling us to be united. We'll see later in this passage that that unity has an evangelistic zeal to it. It has some reasoning behind it. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But here, Jesus' third petition probably has a lot to do with how well you live out the second petition. His third request is found in verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy Fulfilled in themselves. Do you have joy like Christ had joy? True biblical joy does not depend on your circumstances. I think Hebrews 12 affirms this. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's the circumstance here? Verse 2. It's the cross. That's his situation. Jesus is enduring the cross. Yet we see here it was for the joy that was set before him. It brought Jesus tremendous joy to endure the cross. It is possible for you to go through suffering and at the same time have tremendous joy. The next petition comes in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Here Jesus prays that you would be missional. Notice that Jesus does not ask God to remove you from the world, but only that you would be kept from the evil one. Jesus leaves you in the world so that you can be his witnesses. He does not leave you in the world for you to obtain the American dream or to spend your days binge-watching every TV show, every movie that's ever been made. He's created you for a purpose. He's left you here. He's left you in the world, but not of it, so that you can be a witness of his goodness. Then the last petition is that these disciples would be sanctified. We see that in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, sanctification, sanctify means to be made pure, holy, blameless. And for us, we see this as a process. It's the now and not yet that's happening here. And since sanctification and truth are tied together here, then sanctification involves the work of both the Son and the Spirit. The Son is the one who claims he is the truth, and the Spirit is the Spirit of truth who leads believers into all truth. So he will sanctify believers so that you will be equipped to further his kingdom. Which brings us to our final section of Jesus' prayer. He first prayed for himself, then he prayed for his disciples, and now in verses 20 through 26, he prays for us. Listen to this. And remember, he's, he's moments from being arrested, hours from being crucified. And this is, this is how he ends his prayer. Not, not Father, you know, I don't want to do this. He prays this prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now listen to this. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Here's the reason. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let me take a little tangent here. There's a group, Dustin mentioned, there's a group from GoTel that went around and shared the gospel yesterday. And last night at our house, they debriefed on some of the things that they talked about. And some of the things, you know, they, go to, they went door to door, knocked, and got into some good conversations. But as you can imagine, some of those were like, knock on the door, invite people to church, and you know, I, I've done the church thing. I've been hurt by the church. How have you been hurt? Well, I, you know, I heard, I saw this or was treated this way. 
I want you to see this. The way that we treat each other, part of the reason is so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Sadly, there's a lot of people who aren't in church this morning because they didn't see unity in the church. They saw division. They saw people fighting over whether it's music. And it's crazy that there's this phrase when you talk about church division that people have divided over the color of the carpet in the church. You've heard that statement. I have never seen that, but I know that's said because I know it's true somewhere. I know of churches who's divided over music and other things that seem pointless to be arguing about. But the way we treat each other has this evangelistic effort to it. That the world would see how we get along and go, man, there's something different about them. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What? Let me read that again. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Here's again why. That they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that they have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus begins by praying not only for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So first off, if Jesus is praying for individuals who at this moment when he's praying, they are currently lost, but one day will be saved, then this should encourage us to pray for the lost as well. I keep a list in my prayer journal of people God has placed in my life who do not yet confess Christ as Savior. And every now and then, I get the joy of scratching one of those names off my list. I think of individuals like, like, uh, like Jay's dad, um, or even the kids in our church, when they confess Christ. I get to mark off their name from that page, and I get to move it to a different page in my prayer journal. And Jesus refers to, pray, um, refers to people who are still of the world. They are lost. They are blind, but one day they will believe through their word. Did you catch that? It is through your word that the Lord uses as the means to make someone aware of their sin and need of repentance. So the normal way that someone becomes a Christian 
is through hearing the message of Christ through another Christian. It's been said that we're all, you know, we're one beggar giving bread to another beggar. Notice that it's their word, meaning that once we believe in Jesus, his word, in a sense, it becomes our word. It is now our faith, our message to share with the world. We are who God is using to bring the good news of the death, burial, resurrection to the world. The cross is the means by which all nations can have the wrath of God removed, to be reconciled, and we are the agents of reconciliation. This was God's plan to redeem the world. Yeah, I've said this before to us, that it blows my mind to think that God's plan A to make the nations aware of him was the church. I mean, if we look around the room, we look in the mirror to think, this is God's plan to rescue the world? Us? I have trouble just living out my day, you know, the task in my life. God's plan A to redeem the world, to bring the gospel to all nations, it's right here. It's congregations just like this all around the world being faithful, confessing their sin, living in unity so that the world may see something different. Jesus concludes this prayer, and now we will see just how much the world hates him. I mean, there's a big shift here, starting in chapter 18. Minutes from now, he will be arrested Within hours, he will be beaten and crucified. But even while he was hanging on the cross, we still see his love for the world when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I mean, how many of us would say, we'd be like James and John, Lord, strike them down with thunder. Call it down, call down fire. It's that kind of love and forgiveness that has changed the world for 2,000 years and it will continue to change the hearts of men and women until he returns. And this is the message that we get to go out and share this week. Will we be unified? Will we let divisions and strife keep us from being faithful? Or will we be obedient to his calling? Let's pray as the band returns to lead us. Father, you're so good and kind um, to leave us in the world. But Lord, I pray that we are not of it, that we would look different from the world, that we would speak differently, we would act differently, that our relationships would be different. So, Father, I pray that you'd restore our marriages, that you'd restore our families, that you'd restore any broken relationship that may cause a hindrance to someone coming to know you. Lord, help us to be faithful to you.
Lord, help us to live out our purpose, our mission to glorify you, to tell others about you. Lord, embolden us to share the gospel this week. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.